The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From Mina to the World. And I'm your host, Amir Farha. I've been investing in startups since 2005. More recently, I co-founded Beko Capital and now Co2 Ventures, a seed stage VC focused on investing in incredible founders in the Middle East at the earliest stages of their journeys. I've been involved in backing extraordinary companies founded by amazing people. And over the years of investing, I've found that I love understanding the human side to entrepreneurship. I love hearing the stories from people that faced and surmounted huge challenges. And I love championing underdogs who are against the odds of success. For the longest time, the MENA region has been misunderstood. Today, we are creating a new narrative, a new voice that harnesses our strengths and is a driver of our future. The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From MENA to the World. In this episode, I'd like to introduce you to Sonia Weymuller, one of the founders of VentureSook and probably the most conscious investor in the region. Her journey to VC isn't a traditional one, and today she shares her life story and the adventures that brought her to Dubai and to backing entrepreneurs in the region. Really excited to have her with us today, and we hope you enjoy tuning in. So, Sonia, thanks for uh, for joining me on the show. Um, I'm going to start, I mean, I've known you for some time, so I'm just going to, for the audience's sake, maybe walk me through like... um, your childhood all the way through to what brought you to Dubai. Maybe you can even tell me about all your uh, all your uh, achievements because I looked at your LinkedIn profile and you have a ton of little memberships and uh, board positions and like really cool things that you've accomplished. So go ahead. Hi, everyone listening in. My name is Sonia. I'm also known as Frindi because I'm half French, half Indian. So that's my nickname. I grew up a bit all over the world. So I was born in Paris, but spent the first couple of years in my life on this planet in Jakarta. Spent three years there, then moved to Tokyo for six years, and then moved to New York for two years. And then I think when I hit about, I must have been 11, I don't think my dad wanted me to grow up or at least spend my adolescence in New York. So he whisked us off to Paris, where I did my high school. And then graduate when I was 17, then went to the U.S. for undergrad, and then did my master's in London. So, yeah, I grew up in a bunch of uh, different places. I think it was extremely hard as a kid being kind of, you know, teleported left, right, and center by your parents, having to make new friends and new schools. But in hindsight, it definitely is what made me who I am today. Was your dad like a... He was in finance, and so he got posted kind of in different emerging markets, and then we ended up in Paris. Then while I was in university in the U.S., my parents actually moved to Bahrain, and that was 17 years ago. And so Bahrain became my second home. Man, I know that you've been well-traveled, but that's something else. I mean, like, also you speak French and English. French is my first language and English. Uh, historically, I have also spoken Bahasa and uh, Japanese. Growing up in that environment, that sounds, like you said, you had to make friends wherever you went. So your social skills were built up really early. And then I know you went to Yale, which is, you know, an Ivy League school, not easy to get into. And love to know how you made those choices and what you were thinking when you were growing up in that environment. Yeah, I mean, the the French baccalaureate system, which is what I did, kind of boxed as you very early on. So when you're 15, 16, you have to decide what you're going to major in in high school. So you had science, you had literature, and you had econ. I did econ, and most people who end up doing econ end up going to business school in France. But I was 16, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And because I'd had that exposure to the US, 
I knew about the liberal arts education system. And again, I was 16. Yes, I had studied econ in high school, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean I want to end up a banker or in finance or anything. And so decided that I wanted to apply to the U.S. And I was the first student in the history of my... I went to a very old high school in, in Paris. I was the first student in the history of my high school actually to apply to the U.S. And I applied early decision to Yale, which meant that I got my answer in December and it was binding. And I remember I got the answer around lunchtime. I used to go home to, for, for lunch. So I came back to the, to the class and I was crying because I was so happy. I was like, December of senior year. And none of my classmates even knew what Yale was at, at, at that point, right? This is in, the, in 2000 and yeah, 2000. So yeah, it just shows like how different, I guess, the mentality in France is. I think for someone like me, who was kind of top of her class in high school, the idea was that I would do econ, I would go to prépa, which is a preparation for the grandes écoles, for the, for the kind of business schools. And then you end up at like HEC or ESSEC, one of the top business schools, right? But in my case, I didn't know if that was the path I wanted to take necessarily. And so went to Yale, thinking I was going to major in econ, and then ended up shopping around. I took my first macro econ class, hated it, loved the professor, but didn't like the content. And then that's the beauty of the US, right? Is you only have to pick your major by the end of your second year of university. And so I took art history classes, sociology classes, political science classes, and I ended up doing politics. So I did politics undergrad, and then I went to London to do politics grad. Yeah. Thinking I was going to be a journalist at that point. <laughs> Didn't happen. Wow. For me, I went to the UK for undergrad, and I know the problem with not having choice. So I went, I did computer science, and then wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And to switch was a bit of a challenge. Uh, actually, the UK system doesn't allow you to, to Exactly. To switch. Similar. So I appreciate the US system for that, especially when you're young and not knowing what you want to do. But I want to go back a second. What do you think your childhood gave you in terms of tools to conquer life? Because it sounds like you weren't afraid to just do your own thing early on in your life. You weren't following yeah. rules, right? It's like, I'm going to go to Yale. Everyone else is going down this path that you just mentioned, the HSA and yeah. all these things. You kind of didn't necessarily... I suspect if I had been born and raised in Paris, I probably would not have made the choices that I made. But because I had been exposed to so many different cultures and had lived in the US previously, etc. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was still a hard sell to my dad because my dad did follow that path to the Grand École in, when he was younger. Oh, wow. So uh, my mom was always very supportive. My dad and even my French family in general maybe a bit kind of less so. Um, obviously, in hindsight, they're very happy. But back then, they thought I could go do HSA. And why would I go to the US? You know, it's this kind of idea of this modern brain drain to the US, you know, from France. So yeah, so I think in, in my case, I was fortunate that I had very supportive parents, ultimately. So, you know, I think in, in some cases, maybe that's not the case. Well, you had to stand up for what you wanted. It wasn't that easy. You just said like... No, it wasn't. it wasn't that easy. And I mean, I think I am kind of... A, I'm an accidental everything. I feel like, you know, I kind of just, I'm an outlier in, in a lot of different ways. And that was, I guess, the first way back Yeah, then. look, I mean, I've known you enough to know that you're definitely a special, and whatever you do, you just go all in and you're so networked and you're like kind of just so resourceful in how you go about whatever you do. So there's so much respect I have for that, but not to bring you up too much here. So, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so Yale, and then you, you said you wanted to be a journalist and yeah. what changed? Like you, cause obviously you went to the UK, which means you can only do politics. Yeah. Cause I went to the UK cause I knew what I wanted to do. So, because I thought I wanted to be a journalist. So at Yale, I had taken a bunch of courses at the intersection of politics and media. Cause I thought that I would end up either in journalism or in the foreign service or who knows, even in politics. So I did politics and media at LSE. That was just, you know, a one year master's. And then while I was doing my master's, London's a very expensive city to live in. I ended up working. So I ended up getting a job with Microsoft in, uh, in strategy and M&A. And that was pretty much the end of my journalistic aspirations. That's and a pretty cool job. Corporate sector. Yeah. 
So, you, was it actually like given your first job? Was it a really junior role, or were you actually? No, 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 super junior role. But I was working for a friend of mine who I went to Yale with, who's my boss, who's now a very well-known angel investor in the U.S., Fritz Landman. He was also the CEO of ClassPass. And yeah, and so, you know, he knew, he was a very close friend, older brother type figure. And I was like, listen, I need to get a job. Like, I need to like make money because I'm not going to survive in this city otherwise. And he's like, okay, well, why don't you come kind of learn the ropes with us? And so amazing team. All of them were under 30 years old. And it was back in the day when Microsoft was looking at Facebook. So it was like 2006, 2007. And I remember, you might want to edit this part out, but I remember a discussion that we had with some of the senior folks uh, in Seattle. And it was like our team trying to convince Microsoft of the value that Facebook had. Mm. Can you imagine back Man. then? And they ended up buying a stake though. So Yeah, well, look, <laughs> I mean, where was I? I was also in London. I don't yeah. know, you were in London then. Yeah. But I was working in VC. I just started as an analyst for a corporate VC. Um, and we had invested in the biggest social network in Sweden called LunarWorks. And Facebook hadn't arrived. This is 2005, 2006. Yeah. And then literally, I remember when I was to the end of 07, Facebook just destroyed all these local social networks. It just took over the, the whole scene. So I can imagine like you within a, probably a year or so, they're like, what the hell just happened? Exactly. You know. But uh, I was actually tasked at Microsoft. I was actually tasked for that year to look at mobile social networks in Asia because there was a lot happening in South Korea and Japan wow. at that point. Yeah. So it was interesting. What did you do after Microsoft? Then I joined Viacom. And um, it's interesting, I guess, for the younger folk who are listening, I hired, a, not hired, but I actually worked with a headhunter, which honestly is probably the best decision because, you know, you don't have to pay a headhunter or anything. They get paid by the company, right? But they do a lot of the looking for jobs for you. And so in preparation of my graduation, I contacted this headhunter and then I saw, I had seen this job posting for Viacom, but they said like MBA required, et cetera. And so the guy was like, Sonia, like, you know, you're not going to, you know, there's no point in applying for this for you because they're looking for MBA, et cetera. So I went ahead and actually applied myself and yeah, I ended up getting it. So ended up working with uh, Jonathan Laban, who you know, probably. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah, Jonathan interviewed me. And I worked a little bit with him and I worked with uh, with someone else, with Nick Walters also. And so I was at Viacom for four and a half years in London. So I guess to the listeners, if someone tells you that you can't do it, don't listen to them. <laughs> I mean, literally, you can't go to Yale, I'm going to Yale. You can't, you can't uh, <laughs> Apply go to, this to Viacom, job. Viacom, I'm going to Viacom. And you, you see Jonathan who full circle came and you know opened Facebook. Yeah, and, you know, in the region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, four and a half years there. So I was very much interested in in strategy. So Viacom was about how do we launch all these different platforms, MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, all channels that a lot of us grew up on, right? But how do we launch these platforms in emerging markets? So we were, my team was covering Russia, Central Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, India. And what are the skills you think you picked up? Number these, crunching. Number crunching. Yeah, both Microsoft and Viacom were a lot of number Research. crunching. Yeah, number crunching. I think I'm pretty well-rounded as a person in the sense that I'm not like hyper-scientific. I'm not like hyper kind of literary. I'm kind of, you know, well-rounded across kind of everything. But I think forcing yourself at a young age to crunch the numbers is important because you need to understand the numbers before you do anything else. Even though I knew back then, and this is Sonia, how old was I? Like 21, 22. I knew that this is not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't want to be in front of an Excel sheet for the rest of my life. I knew that I had people skills. That's what I enjoy most is interacting with people. But I also understood that it's important to get my head around the numbers first in order to get there, right? Okay, so four and a half years there, and then? And then my father passed away. So my father passed away in 2009 when I was in London. We were on our family holiday. It happened very suddenly. And that's what prompted me wanting to move to this region because my parents were here. 
And so when Viacom opened an office in Dubai, I was the first one to raise my hand. I was already kind of positioning myself within Viacom as kind of the go-to Mina girl, essentially. So any projects that involve the region, I would kind of get put on. So when my dad passed away, I raised my hand, moved here in 2011, stayed with Viacom for a year, and then ended up at uh, Turner Broadcasting after that. So ironically, even though I didn't make it in front of the camera, because, you know, Turner owns CNN, I still ended up on the nerdy side on the other side. So I'm sorry about that. Like, that sounds like a very, you know, uh, tough ordeal to deal with. And I'm sure it, it's sort of, you mentioned earlier in our pre-discussions before the show, like, you know, it really shaped yes. your, your, your future, uh, yeah. at least your future choices. So you came here kind of like as a landing ground, you went to Turner and then suddenly what, you, what were your thoughts there? Like, I want to, so Turner, I, I veered away from strategy, ended up going to ad sales because that's one of the main revenue streams for media companies. So I was like, let me get my head around this and started VentureSuke at the same time. And yes, I do think that losing my dad, because I was 25 when I lost him, shaped my journey in the sense that it was the first time in my life really that I was confronted with mortality. Kind of, so like, People lose grandparents. I had lost grandparents, etc. It's not the same thing as losing a parent. And my dad and I were like super, super close. I was literally the apple of his eye. And so for me... Obviously, losing him, it just I just realized how, as cheesy as it sounds, but I literally realized how short life is. And so while we were at Turner, we started VentureSook. And that was just a bunch of us friends kind of investing together into early stage tech deals. And that was the beginning of a new journey. But how did it happen? So there's five partners now. We were four originally in the sense that Tamar and I so went to undergrad together at Yale. So we've known each other for over 15 years now. And so obviously we used to hang out a lot, etc. And then Sonia and Sunil, the two other founding partners, moved to Dubai around the same time as me. They crashed my birthday party. That's how we met, actually, through mutual friends who brought them to my birthday party. I used to host quite birth- quite amazing birthday parties. And so and the four of us basically started angel investing together. And then what we found, again, this is 2013, right, is that there were a lot of people like us, young professionals in their kind of late 20s, early 30s, who wanted to invest in early stage tech. But yeah, there was maybe AngelList and other players outside the region, but there was no regional platform to do that. And so we just started hosting informal pitch nights at Capital Club until we got kicked out of Capital Club because it was getting too big because our friends started inviting their friends. Still part-timing it. This was part-time until I decided to leave my corporate job first. So everyone had day jobs. We were doing this on the weekends. But to be fair, back then, I don't think any of us thought this would turn into something full-time either. We were just enjoying kind of building this new community, this new layer of investors amongst our friends, right? Looking at cool deals together, etc., And I got to a point in my career where I just felt like the learning curve was stagnant. I must have been, what, like 28 or something? And then I just felt like it's now or never. And again, was reminded of, of of losing my dad. And I think it was just like, what do I have to lose? I'm like in my late 20s. If there's any time, I have no responsibilities. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Do you have a pet back then? It's now or never, basically. So ended up um, quitting first. And then it was kind of a domino effect with the rest of the partners. Year after year, there was one partner that left their job. And then we had Man who joined us from Saudi. The story is amazing. I mean, now you guys are obviously actively investing. So we grew into the largest syndicate in the Gulf, actually. So we had a network of a thousand angel investors and institutions that invested through us. We kind of operate as a syndicate model for a majority of our trajectory so far. And then more recently, we pivoted into more thematic verticals. So far, we've invested in about, I think we're at 200 companies now from around the world. Remit has always been global not regional, which I think maybe differentiates us from some of the other kind of angel groups or syndicates in the region, in the sense that for us, what we're good at is putting our ear to the ground and understanding what our network wants. And some investors only want to invest in this region because it's close to home. Others want to invest in everywhere else but this region 
or they want to invest back home. It could be the US, it could be India, etc. So what we were good at was really kind of just putting our ear to the ground and getting a pulse for what the demand side was and then screening and sourcing accordingly. So I know all four of you. I mean, I don't know Man that well. Unfortunately, I would love to meet him properly. But yeah. uh, all of you are different characters. Completely and different. And I'm curious how you guys dealt with what made it work, given the different personalities yeah. and what do you think everyone brought to the table? Maybe you can't comment too much on others except for yourself, but whatever. You could, no, you I mean, we have that. a pretty open and transparent relationship okay, with cool. the team, which is great. But also, I think the fact that we all come from completely different backgrounds, it's not like we're four ex-bankers that got together and did this, right? Yeah. With the same skill set. So like, you know, Sonia's an actuary, Sonia G, right? Sunil's a lawyer, Tamar's XPE, like I'm strategy. Man is, is private wealth management. So all of us look at deals in different ways and kind of add value in different ways. Real and it diversity. ends up being very complimentary. Like, like total diversity, actually. That's yeah, yeah really, total really diversity. Powerful, diversity powerful. in gender, diversity in skill sets, diversity in professional trajectories. Yeah, so I think it, it ended up... You was know, natural or was it like at some point you're like, guys, we're like figuring out how to actually be an organization now from just being like... We four. kind of organically found our place. You know, like it made sense for Sonia because she's a whiz with numbers to like kind of, you know be our numbers girl, right? It made sense for Sunil because he's a lawyer to do a lot of our legal stuff. Like, you know, obviously everyone does deals though at the same time, but they wear second, kind of secondary hats as well. Secondary responsibilities, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think what's great is that we have so much respect for each other that we also value, for example, like if Sonia and Sunil want to do something within like a thematic vehicle, they will go ahead and do it. If Tamar wants to do, he's working on one right now, then he does it like Conscious Collective was mine, like I want to do it. And everyone's just supportive of each other, basically. And so I think giving each other that space to be to who be we want to be yeah, and, exactly. and be who we want to be, right? And I think, so I went through a, a pretty major health challenge a few years ago. And then when I came back, it was really for me about who, like I didn't feel like I was doing what I was meant to be doing necessarily. And so my partners were amazing because I told them, I was like, guys, I'm not going to leave Ventures too because it's my baby. But how do I leverage this platform that I that we built together to do something which I feel is true to me? And who what is true to me is very different to maybe what I thought was true to me before. And that was kind of the genesis behind launching uh, Conscious Collective, which is our impact arm. I want to go back a second because that's so amazing. Like I, I feel like that, not taking for granted, but it sounds like that natural occurrence is very rare, right? I think the all mutual respect of one another and giving everyone the space and freedom to to be themselves. Yeah. I think is very rare in, in, in partnerships in general, let alone like where you're investing and you have But very adapting as very well. Different, yeah. Right? It's it's not always smooth sailing, but I think with time, because we've been working together for eight years now, right? Would you say that the the common let's say value that exists is like trust and trust. Hundred percent trust. So like, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hundred percent blind trust. And that comes from what? From Trusted. communication? From what? What do you think? I think it's because learn? we've been together for eight years. I mean, you know, to start off as friends and start something, it can go either way, yeah, exactly. right? Like either it, it rocks it or it, you know, or you end up with people kind of, you know, falling off along the way. I mean, it's like any relationship, right? Trust, loyalty, respect. And that's what I look for in anything. Friendship, professional relationships, personal yeah. relationships, it's trust, loyalty, respect. And I think that's kind of the foundation of, of, of what we have. But with that said, I do think that it does take especially when you're dealing with colleagues that are not like you, that don't think like you, that don't see the world like you, and that don't respond. The one book that I use a lot is The Five Languages of Love, right? I mean, oh, a lot yeah. of people look at that book thinking about their personal relationships, but it's applicable to any relationship, whether Absolutely. it be with your parent, with your siblings, with your colleagues, etc. And people show their love or their appreciation and like to receive the love and appreciation in different ways. And it's just you f- figuring What's out... Yours? Yeah, what's mine? Um, so I give my love through um, uh, acts of service, and I like to receive 
appreciation through words of affirmation. But there's an evolution to that as well, because I think... Yeah, you're not the same person as you were last... No, like, like, and so I think like before my dad passed away, I think I used to be a lot more tactile, like with friends and family, and I used to hug a lot, etc. And I think when I my dad, my dad passed away, I kind of became, not frigid, that sounds awful, but like, you know, a little Reserved. more wary. Yeah, and I think it's maybe a self-defense mechanism, but I definitely kind of compensate by doing a lot of things for people. Which brings us to Conscious Collective. I mean, the words... I, I really appreciate because interpreting in, in your own way, I interpret it as like, you know, uh, really ha- being aware of your environment and stuff like that. And then collective means like you're bringing a whole group of people together who care about this mission. It sounds, so I, when I saw it, I was sold, by the way, only because of you, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I know how much you love this space, but yeah. maybe tell us about what it is and and why you you think this is like your passion, mission, whatever you want to call it, yeah. your purpose. Um, well, the plant was seeded, so... When I left Turner and and I was the first one to kind of be jobless, right? Like, I mean, I was kind of in that transition period between corporate job and and, and venture suit kind of full, full time. I did some consulting work for Jacqueline Novogratz at Acumen. And that's kind of what opened my eyes to the impact investing space because they had just launched their Kawisafi fund, which focuses on off-grid solar in East Africa. And so I found myself going to Kenya and diligenting these deals like B-Box, et cetera, that we're targeting bottom of the pyramid, but the entrepreneurs were not looking at this as a social enterprise. This is totally meant to be a for-profit, you know, kind of fully like financially sustainable business, right? And that planted the seed. I was like, wow, this is so cool. These entrepreneurs are doing such cool things in like Africa. And this is not social enterprise. This is not based on philanthropy. And Acumen ended up investing with NG and with Schlumberger. These are like major investors coming in. And this was not part of their CSR budget. So that's what planted the seed in my head. And then the seed was kind of parked. So this must, must have been 2016. And then when I went through this health challenge in 2018, the seed started to grow again, basically. And when I came back uh, to Dubai, end of uh, 2018, I was like, hmm, the work I'm doing is not resonating as much as it used to. And I always like, what always got me out of bed, I'm sure like you, was always um, spending time with entrepreneurs, right? I think also because I come from a strategy background, that's what I, I spent 80% of my time doing that, right? But it didn't feel the same way after after going through this challenge. And so that's when I was like, okay, well, I think this is the time to start kind of embarking on something I feel is more meaningful. Not that venture capital is not meaningful, but I just feel like there's an opportunity for us to channel our money into things that actually matter more. And so didn't want to, it would have been very easy for me to be like, oh, I'm in a, you know, in a, in a, in a region that's full of capital. Let me just launch a $100 million impact fund. It would have fallen on deaf ears because the venture capital industry here is nascent enough. You add that impact layer to it, people would have just been super, oh, is this philanthropy or is this, you know? And so took about a year to craft the narrative for Conscious Collective. So pretty much most of 2019, spoke with my ex-Acumen colleagues, joined Kaufman, yeah. which opened up a lot of uh, doors because we have a very strong impact uh, network in there as well, from like Gates Foundation to Omedia, et cetera. And then um, spoke with investors here to understand like what is the appetite. And then that was the premise for launching Conscious Collective, which we launched in March last year. And so we focus on ag tech, food tech, health tech, financial inclusion, and environmental tech. We had ed tech in there as well. Probably the sector that we diligence the most ended up not making any investments into. Yeah, arguably it's tough. I think, you know, regulation yeah. and the fact that, at least in the region, it's owned by a handful of yeah. big but this, So this is global remit. So we've made 14 investments in the last uh, 12 months from Indonesia to Chile. Do you think that there's still a misconception around impact? You can make huge returns still yeah. being an impact investor. 100%. I think people have that. Well, especially so- if you're investing in, in like, like say, financial inclusion companies in emerging markets, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's fintech ultimately, right? It's just that you're dealing with a target demographic that 
for whom this is very new, right? So I think there's a huge opportunity. I think part of 2020, actually most of 2020 was for us to focus on educating this market and dispelling this myth that if you're investing in a company, even a tech-enabled company that has is going to have a positive long-term outcome, that it's philanthropy. Because it's still very two-pocket thinking driven over here. What is the meaning behind Contrast Collective in the sense that like you did this for what? Like, What is the driving force? Is it because you want to... Is it just impact or what kind of impact is it? Is it? Uh... We want to be able to channel money from this region into sectors that are still underserved from a capital injection standpoint. That's the, let's say, professional answer. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like in your definition as Sonia, what's your measurement of success here? Is it like My what, measurement what drives of success you? What drives is you? to nurture the next generation of mission-driven investors from this region, which is why we launched a fellowship program last year as well, which was how do we educate investors and we had people from all kinds of backgrounds. It was by invite, right? From a senior level woman who works for Sheikh Mohammed to our friend who manages a fund of funds in Bahrain to the head of CSR at HSBC Europe. So we had all kinds of different profiles that joined this uh, this fellowship. But that for me is the end point, right? How do we actually nurture the next generation of either individual investors or emerging fund managers who want to invest in this space as well. You know, if I asked like, because obviously Tamar and you are very close, you've known each other for so long. And if I asked each one, what would they say about you? Tamar, Sonia, Sunil? I think think they would say definitely empathetic and compassionate. They would probably say strong and resilient. Tamar would probably say that for whatever reason... I'm not confident enough because he's like a brother, right? So yeah. he's always like Sonia, like he's like your conscience. But I think he is kind of, but but at the same time, like everyone has insecurities. You can't Absolutely. be kind of on the game all the time, right? So, but he's he constantly reminds me, like Sonia, like don't sell yourself short. Like, what do you, you think your insecurities are? I think there's always a, especially for me because I don't come like I'm a total accidental venture capitalist. Like this was not part of my plan at all. I don't come from a finance background. Like I wasn't like groomed towards either finance, like banking, like investment banking, or towards, you know, venture capital, right? But some of the best investors are exactly like that. 100% agree. And I think I remember the first ever event that I spoke at publicly at Capital Club, actually. Someone asked me, what one trait do you owe your your success to or something in, in your industry as a venture capitalist? And I said, altruism. And I said, if it weren't for my being an altruist, I could not be a good investor because ultimately you need to care about the entrepreneur. I think this is the biggest um, driver of this kind of show and, and generally, you know, for me at least from a regional standpoint that I think needs to be uh, brought to light is is the idea that, you know, there's a power dynamic most investors deal with with founders where you kind of, they, they leverage their capital against against them for certain things and it's not serving the entrepreneur's interests in most cases. Yeah. I think it takes someone who's quite self-aware to to realize that this is really a serve you're at the service of founders. Yes. When did you realize that? Because for me, I'll tell you not to harp on about myself, but maybe a little bit like I I also was accidental venture capitalist. I did my masters and then found myself doing my thesis with a corporate VC, and I didn't even know what venture capital was. And then mm. from there, I fell in love with the entrepreneurial stories. I'd sit in meetings, and exactly. there's some guy changing the world. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And that hooked me with it. It wasn't to do with the Excel sheets and let's make mm-hmm. a return valuation Same. like this. And But we know enough about, let's say, the regional investor landscape, even global, there are still investor examples where that power dynamic is there. When did you realize that altruism piece is, is so important? I think that you alluded earlier to the fact that I'm super connected, etc. I am, I would say that is one of my strengths in the sense that I've encountered a lot of very interesting people from different career paths. It's not like I only hang out with VCs 24-7. Like, you know, I know a lot of people in different markets and different industries, etc. And I think 
my strong suit. And that's why someone called me a human router. I just like to bring people together. Yeah. And back to your question, I think it's it's the way I've always been. And, and I think I was also raised by my parents. My mom always said, if you can help someone, you should. And so I think it's that compassion, that empathy for the entrepreneur, which kind of has always driven me. And actually, I say I'm an accidental venture capitalist, but it actually kind of makes sense that I end up doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah. You know, it all now it's pure synchronicity. It, it, I am exactly where I need to be right now. And it took me this career trajectory to get to that, but I needed that career all trajectory. All these moments to get matter. There. Yeah. I agree with you. All those moments that, that got you here are exactly what, what they needed to happen. Got so, goosebumps. Yeah. 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 Seriously. <laughs> exactly. Outside of what you just explained on empathy and stuff, what do you think makes a good investor? When you look at like you've made 200 investments as venture suit, but you've also encountered investors from global globally yeah, like, yeah, yeah. from all parts of the world and are there people that you've seen wow this guy or this girl is just she, they really know how to how to spend time how to add value with founders or what is it about I think it depends on the investors. I think investors can add value in different ways, right? So some investors, like I would say someone like Tamar, for example, is very operationally driven. He he can kind of roll up his sleeves and, and get his, get his hands probably dirty. similar to you, right? I think I add value, again, in terms of, of my network and seeing kind of maybe cross-pollination because when you have 200 companies now, it's like that's when you see the opportunities that come about, right? From kind of, I should introduce this company to this company. They should work together or they should do this, et cetera. Or maybe one can acquire the other, et cetera. So I think it's that. People joke with me that I have two brains, but it's, I do kind of have two brains where like, even if I'm at a random dinner party and I meet someone and I'm like, okay, in my head, I'm like, okay, I have to introduce them to them, 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 them. It's just very yeah. quick in my head, right? And it's so I think it's that's hard for of, people that comes naturally to you, basically. Yeah, it comes naturally to me. And I think at least at least with Conscious Collective, I've also been able to bring investors who probably would never have come across some of these companies, like one in Kenya that we just invested into, for example, because it just they didn't think it fit their remit. Um, or it wasn't the kind of the right geography, but they ended up investing anyway because they really like the founders. And ultimately, it's about the founders as well, right? So even for Conscious Collective, when I was building the narrative and I was like, how do you measure a founder's integrity, right? For something, because you want to invest in mission-driven founders, et cetera. That's not something that's tangibly measurable. And I remember actually, as I was, so I got a lot of help from people kind of who I was soundboarding with, including like Magnus and Ankur and, and Mudassar. And I remember being in Mudassar's office now, who's the founder of, of Kareem. And uh, it's like, Mudassar, like also because I have an ex-consultant brain, right? I was like, I have this one slide that I'm really struggling with because it's like, you know, it's kind of like, what do we look for in a company, right? So there's like the commercial KPIs, but then there's like the founder KPIs. And I'm like, I'm struggling. Like, how do you measure integrity? And that's when Mudassar was like, Sonia, like, you're totally overanalyzing this. Like, you know, you can't put everything, you can't measure everything and put everything on paper. Some stuff just comes from the gut. It's like the gut feel. But I will say this, with Conscious Collective, we spend a whole lot more time with the founders to get to know them before even making the investment. Really? Yeah. So what do you, what do you look for? When you, when you say it's just time. conversations. Like, I think what I realized in hindsight is that, yes, of course, we know all our founders, like um, across all these different hundreds of companies that we have. And yes, we'll know that, you know, so-and-so is married, has two kids, et cetera, right? But when I look, and I've said this before in other in other panels, but like, you know, when I look at some of the companies that have not done so well amongst our portfolio, oftentimes it's not because the founder is not experienced enough or not well-pedigreed enough to do what they're doing or because the idea is bad. It's just that it's not the right time for that founder to be working on this right now. It's timing. And it's, it's, it's that lack of self-awareness and understanding kind of why you're doing this as a founder that really matters. And so what I found beautiful about Conscious Collective because it's kind of automatically filters the companies that we're looking at because it takes a certain personality to want to change the world whether you're, you know, revolutionizing the healthcare sector in Kenya or, 
you know, doing plant-based, you know, meat or whatever, is that there is kind of that that sense of purpose. And I feel like a lot of the founders that we've invested into have done that inner work already, where they understand, like, if I ask them, what is motivating you to do what you're doing right now? They're not going to say, I just want to be a unicorn, right? There's a much deeper meaning and purpose to why they're doing what they're doing. And they've done the work and they've understood it on their own. So this is a really like interesting space because there is no formula, right? At the end mm-hmm. of the day, it's, it's, it's all about, like even your definition of integrity is probably different to my definition yeah. of integrity. So it's, it's, a, it's unfortunately a judgment to a certain extent. One of the things that I spend time on with founders is trying to see, let's say, how clearly they can articulate what they're doing because I feel like the more clear they can articulate it means that they've gone through the run of the mill of like understanding what they're doing so well that they can dumb it down in simple terms. And then, yeah. And how deep is their understanding of the space? So that's through questioning and seeing things. But I mean, that's probably the the two things that I care about the most in discussions because it's hard to even... Because you have founders of all, all kinds. You have founders with high ego, even though they're maybe aware of certain things. And then you have founders that are maybe introverted and less you know, uh, out there. And, and so each one is investable. Yeah. Not, you know, so how do you... I guess I'm, 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 I'm ramming a little bit, but I want to understand how if there's other things that you think you've learned in your time as an investor that that you can maybe shed light on and in the process of understanding a good founder. Yeah. No, I think the main one is that level of self-awareness that the founder has or has not. Because that's going to trickle down at the company culture level. That's going to trickle down on this, ultimately like who they pick or who they hire, um, the types of people that they surround themselves with. That's so interesting because that means you're self-aware. I think none of us are kind of there yet, yourself or myself. Yeah. But yeah, I'm definitely on a journey of self-awareness and I've done I mean, a lot of work on myself. Forget about that, but I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Working no, no, no definitely. Yourself. No, no, I am self-aware, but this has been part of the process as well, I think. Like, I think I've been self-aware on a personal level and now I'm trying to kind of translate that into the professional realm. That's exactly what I've been through the past few years. Like, just really understanding myself and it, I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Because then you can deal with all kinds of founders the more you understand. But also, I think what's interesting is that I remember being at this conference a few years ago here and and there was a whole panel on like personal branding. And it's never something that I've thought about because, I mean, you've known me now for a few years, like what you see is what you get with me. There's yeah. not like a venture souk Sonia versus like a, a friend's Sonia, like, you know, a personal Sonia, right? Authenticity. So, yeah. Yeah. There's, okay. And, but maybe that's what my personal brand is, is like yeah. authenticity. I don't know. But yeah, it's interesting because I think it, that alignment for me as an investor is important as well. I don't want to be this like, bipolar work Sonia versus, you know, Absolutely. real Sonia type of person. You're unfortunately a minority that behaves this way because most people do have that different, oh, I'm an investor now. now yeah, but that also has to do with social conditioning, right? Because they're being told, especially amongst women, about that. It's because they're also that. being told you need to act this way, especially women. Women like, is a whole, yeah. Whole yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, especially in a region like this where it is a lot about brands and perception and, and all this stuff, I, I hope that we see more kind of genuine people. And I don't think people should be afraid to just show themselves for who they are. Did you ever think about, like, have you ever felt like the whole imposter syndrome ever oh, hit 100%. you? Oh, 100%. I still feel it. Me too. Yeah. But when did when did you really, probably when you were first starting Venture Suit? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Venture Suit, I totally felt like a, what's the expression in English? Like fish out of the sea or whatever. Like, it definitely was like, it's the right decision. But then I think I came to, and this is for the listeners who are thinking, the younger listeners who are thinking about maybe going to Venture Capital. Like, there's not one right path to Venture Capital because it takes such a broad uh, set of skills that you can add value in a lot of different ways. And just because you didn't study finance and you don't know how to value a company and all that, all this stuff is stuff that you can learn. Like, you know, this is really yeah. like a textbook stuff, right? But there's other skill sets that I think are very important that you can add to this industry specifically. At a baseline, just be nice. If you're nice to founders, that's already good enough. Mm. 
because the journey itself is like so painful and kind of lonely. But I will tell founders at the same time that if investors are nice to you, which they should be, please say thank you. Yeah, that's true. It's mutual respect for sure. Most of the time I encounter like, you know, kind of nice founders, but I have also helped a lot of founders just opening up doors, not because I invested in them, but just because I want, I just want to be helpful. That's yeah. it. Like, even if I'm not altruism. going to invest in you. Altruism. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I might not invest in you. Maybe someone else will, or someone else can be helpful on this front or that front, etc. Just send me a note and say, thank you, Sonia. That was actually great. You know, I had a great conversation. True. I totally get that. And I agree with you. But at the same time, like, that's on them. That's not on you. You're doing... You, no, you're no, that's what I'm saying. This is advice to the founders who are listening. Because no one has to do anything in this world, right? Like, if someone sa- says, oh, you should speak to these three people, sends an introduction, say thank you. They didn't have to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Okay, okay. So maybe I want to talk about a subject that I think we can have a conversation about, which is like sort of the investor landscape, not not the VC landscape, the, I wouldn't even say angels, the LP side. Mm-hmm. You went, you raised the fund. I know it's... Not, not going to be massive, but it's not small, not small either. It's like you know, it's a starting point for something. Well, this bigger. one is, yeah, but the next one's going to be bigger. You're one of the most well-networked people, so you arranged a call when the lockdown happened with um, Deepak Chopra. Like who, you know, like you're you're connected enough to pull these type of things. So, how do you think about fundraising? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, it'll be interesting for me to listen to this podcast like a year from now uh, and to see how the experience was. Um, but for me, alignment is key. And like, you know, I know beggars can be choosers, especially when it comes to fundraising, whether you're a founder or a GP raising for a fund, we're all going through a similar experience. But as much as I can, and I really want there to be alignment with the types of LPs that I bring in. And I really, I, I don't want LPs who are doing this for the wrong reasons, who are doing it for vanity purposes. Uh, I want LPs, because with Conscious Collective, for example, like, you know, we look at deals commercially exactly the same way that we look at deals for Venture Souk, right? We're just hyper-focused on sectors yeah. and markets that we haven't been focused on or, you know, that we feel there's an opportunity in. So understanding that, like LPs who understand that this is not philanthropy and that you should be expecting VC returns is is important. But also, just like we were saying, having these conversations with founders, I want to have the same conversations with LPs. Yeah, but then, you know, argument, the flip side here is that most of the LPs in the region are not that sophisticated. I'm, but I, I didn't say that I was going to raise from this yeah, region. Yeah, so see, that's the <laughs> trick. But so that, yeah. but that, that really is I, a, No, I might. I mean, there's, there's certain institutions and family offices, some of whom have personally invested already in Conscious Collective, who I know are aligned because they get it, right? Yeah, okay. But I'm not sure. I mean, listen, it's going to be interesting, again, to, to reconvene 12 months from now to see who ends up on the, on the as part of the LPA. But the ideal for me with this uh, vehicle, this next one, will be to, how do we unlock some of the capital here towards companies globally that are doing really interesting things? Yeah, I mean... And specifically, probably emerging markets focused. What do you think about the region? Like, what are your thoughts in general, both ecosystem, anything? You can take this anywhere. Like, I'm really feeling for the entrepreneurs that are still too early, which is where you will fit in nicely, right? It's just too early. We need, like, we even as Conscious Collective have to see some level of traction, right? Because we're focused on seed to series A. But the number of entrepreneurs that sit like right before that, I feel for them because how many angel groups can you go to? How many friends and family do you have, like, you know, who who can invest? You know, I'm sure that we're missing out on a lot of really interesting deals and opportunities because they don't have access to the funds. And most of them don't have money, to, personal money to put in, in into this, right? And, you know, it is 2021. We just went through a major, and we're still going through a major pandemic. Like people are being a bit more careful about their spend, et cetera. This is probably not the best time to be raising from friends and family, right? Yeah. Which is kind of the initial capital that you need. So, so yeah, so I would say kind of that's something I've been reflecting on specifically this week, actually, because I've had a few kind of 
difficult conversations. I'm being, again, I'm being as helpful as I can in a non-financial way, but it's not, I'm also representing other people's money, including yours. It's tough. Yeah. When you look at the region, do you, you, what opportunities do you see in it? Or like from an investment perspective, you mentioned all these sectors, but is it like, for example, um, anything to do with financial inclusion? You mentioned. Yes, yeah, so we're way seeing that to, already with all, a few players here. I think AgTech is going to be a big one here because of the AgTech. whole food security issue. Yeah. yeah. So we've been looking at a few companies in that sector here. And I think food tech is going to be an interesting one as well. It's one that I'm personally interested in as well. In the region? Still, yeah, and it's interesting because I was having this conversation with this amazing company in Brazil. They were Series B, so they were too late for Conscious Collective. But I was so happy to see their products in Carrefour and Choitrams. Here, oh, no way. All the okay. way from Brazil. They haven't even entered the US yet, but they're already in the UAE. I was like, this is good. Like plant-based sausages and plant-based... Uh, they're like basically the Brazilian version of Beyond. Yeah. Okay, Very okay. Cool. So UAE is sort of... Well, UAE is UAE because but UAE is heavily expat, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. of course, if the expats are going to be healthier and look at plant-based solutions, then they're mm. going to see the supply coming in, right? Yeah. Um, now, do whether that translates thoughts? into other markets is a question mark. Yeah. Do, you, do you, I mean, do you have thoughts on Saudi like as a as a market? I'm, I'm dying to go back, actually, because I feel like there's been so many changes over the last yeah, year. Yeah, it's been crazy, right? Yeah. The amount of money um, that's gone into the ecosystem, the amount of opportunity that's coming out, and obviously, like, I don't know, just the, the progressive nature of it. Like, everyone, well, we've, they've been in total lockdown, so I don't know. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. To no, now it's probably not the time to enjoy Saudi, but uh, I'm dying to go to Al Ula specifically. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, I want to see some of the natural landscapes in Saudi, actually. That's kind of what I'm most excited about rather than going to, you know, the, the tech conferences and yeah, exactly. <laughs> that we usually go to. <laughs> If you could change the region, change something about the region in one way, mm. what would you do? Like change a part of it? Like would it be making it like a kind of like the EU where there's free trade across borders, talent can go across? For example, I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing out ideas, yeah, 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 but I I'm know. just I would like. Well, to that hear. I mean, I'm sure you've said this on multiple interviews as well. Obviously, the fragmentation is a uh, is difficult, and it's something that I constantly have to explain to entrepreneurs who I have conversations with, even for Conscious Collective, for example. Like you know. Don't just think you're going to come to the Middle East and you have the whole Middle East. Like, you know, it doesn't work that way. Like you start somewhere, you might not even want to start in the UAE. Maybe you want to start in Saudi or in Egypt or like, et cetera. And then each market that you penetrate, I mean, you know this. Yeah, no, no, um, but this is important because I guess for you, your your lens is also global. So you yeah. invest in Southeast Asia, Africa, US, Latin America, and the Middle East. And when I compare, just openly speaking here, like those are very different opportunity sets. Very difficult, different opportunity sets. But funnily enough, so... We had this panel, this Singaporean panel for this event, was it a month or two ago? And it was all Kaufman's on it. And it was me, it was Michael Lintz, it was uh, Christina from Ignea in LATAM in Mexico, and Ike representing Africa. And it was so funny because, so we basically have in investors from different emerging markets on the same panel. And every time someone said something, the rest of the panel was nodding. The rest of the panel was nodding. So yes, there are differences, but there are a whole lot of similarities as well in terms of the journeys on the founder side, but also on the investor side and kind of educating LPs, etc. Right? I think there's more similarities than differences, even for and that's. I mean, we'll see what happens with with conscious collective portfolio companies and where the cross pollinations lie. But I'm hopeful that we'll get some of them actually to to come to this region, the ones that are outside. To expand. But I think, yes, so fragmentation is definitely um, one key issue. And yes, if I had a magic wand, what would I do? I would I would create some sort of like council, like GCC council on top just for entrepreneurship so that you don't see like a fintech, like maybe, maybe each market should have its own kind of theme, right? So maybe UAE is fintech and maybe Bahrain is food tech and maybe Saudi is ag tech and like, and you know, and try to cross pollinate as as a region rather than kind of replicate things. Yeah, compete and replicate. Yeah. yeah. That's a great one. Hopefully some of them are listening. Or I hope you're all listening. <laughs> 
So okay, so now when you when you look at like you're at the beginning of what is a very long journey in the sense of venture, generally you only realize how good you are years ahead of these investments, right? Mm. And you obviously are going to raise fund two now. Do you have a vision of what you're trying to accomplish in the next 10 years? You mentioned you want to educate investors on how to be more impact-driven or impact-investing, which is really cool. Mm. Is that part of a bigger mission? I think the ecosystem building bit has always been very important to me, even as Venture Soup, because mm. essentially what Venture Soup did was, this was before a lot of the other angel groups, right? So like we basically kind of created this new layer that didn't exist of investors in the region, right? We just provided a platform for them to invest. I'm not a big fan of 10-year plans, nor am I a big fan of five-year plans because mm-hmm. life throws you curveballs that are unexpected. That said, I, I have, I, I've just in general been reflecting quite a bit on like, what would I want my legacy to be? Aside from kids, et cetera, right? But I mean, like, you know, what, what do I want to leave on this planet, right? Definitely, I think several iterations of the Conscious Collective Fund would be an, it growing in size. And I think it's also great for the region to have kind of this story, this beautiful story that's been built very much organically. It's a homegrown story, but investing kind of all over specifically emerging markets. So that's kind of one thing that I think I would like to see. My personal passion, which I still need to work on, but I also believe that if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. It's already starting to happen a little bit. It's really, I think I've said this to you, is the the nexus of uh, technology and wildlife conservation. I'm yeah. hypersensitive to animals. Uh, for those who don't know that already, um, I care more about animals than I care about our species, to be perfectly yeah, your frank. Cat, your cat. And I have my cat, Sisu. Sisu. Um, so rescue cat, right? My, my, my rescue disabled cat, yes. Uh, kitty of determination. So, I mean, I would love one day to have like a fund that focuses just on that. Kind of like Paul Allen did with Vulcan in a way. Um, how do you better leverage technology to actually service our planet and creatures, non-human creatures on the planet? You know, when I hear these things, it's like a massive inspiration. You know, this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, because I I feel like they're rare, rare for people to have these like really, I would say, impactful aspirations. Most people take on jobs for the sake of like financial gain Mm. or other things. But this is why people like you need to get funded. This is why people like like you need to get backed, because even if you accomplish 5% of what you want, it's still going to be massively, massively impactful. I hope so. Um, so maybe a couple of things. I mean, like I'll, I'll leave the last couple of questions, but like, you know, has there any been any book? I don't want to bring books as a list and so people can read, but just really like things that you're like, wow, I read this and it changed my outlook yeah. on life, world, work. Like a message I, I kept on getting, I actually have it even written on my necklace, is the word breathe. And I read an amazing book a few years ago called A Life Worth Breathing. The author is Max Strom. And it's one of those books where you just end up underlining the entire book because everything resonates. And it's a book that I carry with me, well, when I used to travel, because I haven't traveled since December 2019. But it's it's, it's a book that I actually carry with me everywhere I go, just as a reminder, just to read a few pages when I can. So that's that. I have struggled with the reading bit. I had all these aspirations, as I'm pretty sure most listeners have had as well, of when pandemic hit, like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to meditate every day and I'm going to read like 5,000 books in the next 12 months. Yeah, I haven't read. I've been reading Pema Chodron more recently. Yeah, so I I got a few of her books. I'm reading Sir Ronald Cohen's uh, Impact. That's his newest book called Impact, which I'm finding interesting. I think for anyone interested in the impact investing space and how quickly it's growing, I definitely recommend that you read that one. It's his latest book. And yeah, I have Ray Dalio. I have a lot of books that have been sitting on my bedside. And I literally have two piles on both 
bedside tables of books. I'm also the kind of person who switches books based on my mood. I also heard Naval Ravikant say this. He's like, don't try and read the book from back to front yeah. just or front to back. Just just actually whatever its use is, it's there, read it, and then move on to the next one. And then yeah. if it's not about volume of books, you may even reread the same book multiple times over and learn from it. So The Alchemist actually is the one that I reread every wow, five I, to I ten I want to read that. That's fun. My, my brother and is... And it takes on, I'm rereading it actually right now and it's taken on. Each, each time you read it as you grow wiser and older, it takes yeah, on a whole other meaning. Yeah. Okay, last one, last one. How do you stay motivated? I'm usually good at kind of taking time for myself. More recently, I've sucked at it over the last two, three months for, for various reasons. But I feel most motivated when I feel centered. I'm not the kind of person who has to be out and about every night and surrounded by people all the time. If anything, I find that draining. So even pre-pandemic, I always had two nights a week that were just Sonia nights where I don't pick up the phone, I don't talk to people, etc. And I think because I give out a lot of my energy, like it's my time to kind of recharge the batteries. I haven't had a lot of that recently. So I'm feeling a little uh, a little drained. And you're also in a pandemic, which is still draining, even with you taking space. The pandemic has actually, uh, from a, from that standpoint, been okay. I mean, touch wood, obviously, we're all grateful to, to be where we are in, in Dubai with vaccines, etc. Absolutely, yeah. But um, there's definitely worse places to be experiencing this. But I think it was a great reset for a lot of people, right? It just gave, like, for me, it was perfect because I was like, I have the perfect excuse not to see anyone now. I could stay at mm-hmm. home with my cat and be perfectly happy. But also, like, I want to say something about, again, just maybe finish off on the meditation bit. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to meditate. There's no one way to meditate. Everyone just assumes that meditation is you sitting there for 20 minutes in the morning, silently, etc. And it doesn't have to be that way. Like, I've, I don't like silent meditation, for example. I love sound healing. Like, I, if, if I'm in a in the right kind of context and group and there's someone who has bowls and and does sound healing. I love that. But even little things like during the pandemic, you know, I used to have my phone next to me, you know, as you do next to your bed, right? Most of the time. Um, My cat sleeps on my bed. And so I changed like a little habit where in the morning, instead of doing checking my phone the first thing in the morning, my first 10 minutes of the day was actually turning to my cat and petting her and her purring and me just, that was my meditation. Those 10 minutes. Yeah, it was just my focus on her basically for 10 minutes, not thinking about my phone, nothing about work, nothing about myself, just thinking about another creature actually and just focused on her. Yeah, that's the thing. I think people f- try to follow the rules. There is no way to meditation can be I'm a big exactly. rule follower by the way. Like I'm always like, okay, yeah, and oh, then yeah. what? And Wait, then I Now you bring up wow, the last well, let's go back one more question here because <laughs> when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, you had to tell me about all these things you were doing. Well, that should have been the first question, but now we're doing it at the end. Uh, I, I, like, yeah, I'm involved. You're on the Thai, you're in Thai chapter. Thai, yeah, Thai. Uh, wait, let me make me pull it up. Well, Thai, yeah. So Thai, Thai have been on the board for a while, but I really it was important to me with this program that I helped launch called Thai Hustle to like, how do we basically, how do we nurture the next generation of entrepreneurs that could be? All of us go to the similar conferences and we all see each other there. We see the same entrepreneurs, the same investors, et cetera. But there's a whole untapped pool of human capital that's amazing sitting in Old Dubai and Satwa and Dera. And a lot of them have come here circumstantially. They're from East Africa. They're from the Philippines. They're from South Asia. Like my doorman had a computer science degree uh, the woman who does my nails is a physiotherapist from the Philippines. This Nigerian boy that I that I mentor has a degree in industrial chemistry from Lagos and used to teach math and came here as a dishwasher. Like, you know, how do we empower this generation of entrepreneurs who have hopes, um, but they don't have access to the Amirs and the Sonias, etc. So that's kind of the tie. Uh, yeah, but you have you have uh, the Ark and then you have E7. So the Ark is Kaufman. That's Cedric, who's in my class. Oh, so cool. this is his passion project. So that's what I'm saying. It's actually coming full circle now because... 
it's something that's been in the back of my mind and now Cedric's doing it and bringing me on board. So it's uh, been an interesting uh, journey. Amazing. I mean, yeah, you said to get to that point, you were saying I, I follow rules. I mean, I, I used to, and I still probably do like, like as a force of habit, have to do certain, certain, a certain way. Um, but what I found with meditation, I mean, I did the Vipassana. I know I'm, retreat, I'm wanting to do that, which, which, you know, not for everybody, but it showed me the power of, of what really like disciplined meditation can do for you as a human. And so I lost that since coming back, but the past 10 days has been me really engaged again. Mm. And it's like, for me, I just find it an amazing way to process a lot of the things that you're, you're, you're just sitting in your subconscious with, which I, I also didn't realize I could do through the tool. So, but there's no rules. Like I just sit and I sit in silence. You don't like silence. I actually don't mind. No, it. But again, like I think there was a period during the pandemic, I got a bike from Dragon Mart and every morning I would, I'm also a bit of a multitasker. So like, you know, like for example, this morning, like, you know, I read my Sir Ronald Cohen book while I bike on my indoor bike. Oh, like so I can do bike. it at okay, the same yeah, time. Okay. Okay, yeah. like but during the, I, have an, I have an external bike as well, like an outdoor bike. And so I, I love Inside Timer. Because I like the diversity that it has. It's not just meditations. You can work on specific themes like blame and resentment, or you can work like I'm doing a course around the science of sound. Um, so they have all kinds of different like workshops. I'm actually a paying customer. I, I don't pay for many apps, but I, Inside Timer is one that I actually am a paying customer of because I really, really enjoy it. So yeah, so like during the pandemic, I would actually every morning go biking outside, but while listening to a course or a meditation, etc. So it doesn't have to be you with your eyes closed meditating. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Sonia, listen, this has been awesome. I love your energy. I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing everything you've shared. And uh, I mean, Conscious Collective, I mean, I'm an investor and I'm a massive supporter regardless of any financial uh, outcome here of what you're doing and, and the person that you're becoming. And, and so, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope that everyone enjoyed listening to our conversation today. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you were able to take away some valuable insights on this episode. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast listening app, and please don't forget to leave us a review and share it with your friends. The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From Mina to the World. Mina to the World